You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to another episode of Simulcast. Uh, this time I'm joined by a guest by the name of Jack Pottle, who's going to talk to us about something I've been watching for a long time, and that is virtual reality in simulation. How are you, Jack? Very good, thank you. Speaking from a once for once sunny London. Excellent. So on that note, uh, I'll introduce Jack. He's the co-founder of Oxford Medical Simulation, which is a VR simulation company. And of course, I'll put the link to his website up on the blog post. Now, Jack's had a pretty varied background. He started off in psychology, then he worked as a healthcare assistant, and now he's a doctor working in acute medicine for the last seven years. And uh, he tells me that he got involved in medical education through the FOMED, uh, Oxford Medical Education. And then he's really narrowed that down to think particularly about SIM and particularly now about virtual reality. So, uh, Jack, this is really interesting background. I think it's probably relevant to the listeners, both in terms of what you do now and how you got there. So tell us a little bit more about this uh, backstory. Yeah, so I appreciate it. It is, it is slightly strange. Uh, I started with an educational psychology degree and not really knowing what to do with my life, but knowing I liked the patient contact, went into nursing and from there into medicine. So as, as you say, I've been in acute medicine for seven years. And it was throughout that time and beginning to see the difference between what people learned at medical school and what they needed to know in practice that I developed uh, this FOMED site called Oxford Medical Education designed to bridge that gap between training and practice. And that does very well, really, internationally. The, the idea being to be able to improve uh, quality of care in places without access to medical education. And that led me to think, OK, how do we take, uh, when I then became a physical simulation instructor in London, how do you begin to take everything that we do in physical simulation, that truly immersive, engaging experience that we know translates to practice and improves outcomes? And how do you begin to deliver that in a different way to be able to get SIM to more people worldwide to improve quality of care. And that is what's led to Ops Medical Simulation. So the company that I'm currently medical director of for the last two years. And we do exactly that, try and deliver everything that we do in physical SIM, but using VR. Yeah, well, that's a pretty big step. And I guess I'll just make it clear for our listeners. Uh, I'm not getting any kickbacks from Jack. It is a uh, commercial company, but I think it illustrates some of the interesting journeys that are going on in uh, virtual reality. And uh, I get the sense that was probably the way or the only way that you had to take that journey, Jack. Is that right? I think so. You've got to go, you know, you've got to go through a lot of things and make a lot of mistakes before you find out the best way of approaching a problem. And to us, it, it was exactly that. You know, the tech in a way is neither here nor there. It's the same in physical sim. You can throw a high fidelity mannequin at something that's not necessarily the right answer. It was always for us looking at what is the problem that you're trying to solve and therefore what is the best tech to do it. And having worked through you know, an online platform, done a lot of 360 videoing in the past, it was really only virtual reality that could solve the problems that we were trying to address in terms of the throughput, accessibility, the cost uh, of physical simulation. All right. Well, this is probably a good point to kind of take a little deep dive into what we mean by some of this terminology and what the technology really represents. Obviously, Ben Simon and I, being the uh, sci-fi nerds we are, have been to see Ready Player One, so I think I know what VR is. But it might be useful for you to explain a little bit about some of the definitions. What's AR? What's VR? 
VR? Uh, what's the experience of these things for our learners or even gamers? Sure. So first of all, I haven't even seen Ready Player One yet. So you're well ahead of me on that, unfortunately. But I've probably got a bit more background in, in AR and VR, so I can explain some of those terms. Yeah, well... Actually, that movie really required you to be a sci-fi nerd in the 80s. So I don't know how old you are, Jack, but that would be the relevant thing. Trust me, I was around in the 80s as well. <laughs> I'd, I'd be able to get involved. Um, so um, I'll talk a little bit about AR first and then about VR and do feel free to jump in with anything in the meantime. So AR is all about overlaying virtual objects in the real world. So the best way of illustrating this is probably just with a few examples. So really simple examples of AR are in fighter jets when your pilot has a, a visor so they can see through the visor. They can see the whole of their real world. But there's more information overlaid on that. So their altitude, their speed, etc. Same as you get in cars. Um, Google Glass was another example. So again, Someone puts on glasses, they can see the real world through those glasses, but there's information that can be displayed or videos that can be displayed on them. So that really is AR. You can also look at it in terms of your phone. So something like Pokemon Go was AR, the idea that you're seeing the real world on your phone, but there's a little virtual Pokemon overlaid in it. The big kind of technology in AR at the moment is Microsoft HoloLens. So that's the first large scale commercial AR headset. And again, there is a visor so you can see the real world with objects overlaid. Worth saying that AR is, is a difficult beast at the moment because it's not quite, in my view, up to speed yet at what it will be in five years' time or so, in that it's still not terribly usable. The headsets are relatively big and the field of view is relatively small. And that doesn't make you feel really like those objects are in the real world. Uh, but it's getting there. And that, that's a personal view. And I'd encourage anyone to try these AR things to see what they think. And can I just jump in there? Because it feels to me like one of the things with this AR is that you're also getting like discordant messages. Like I've seen some of these heads up displays as you're supposedly looking at the trauma room, then you can access your airway checklist in the peripheral field of vision. But to my mind, uh, and maybe I'm just not hip and cool enough, but that just feels like it would be annoying to me. Um, is there some of this discordance when you're sort of getting two inputs of the real and the and the augmented? Absolutely. I think if you're if you're not hip and cool enough, then absolutely neither am I. And that has been the the issue or my issue with AR is absolutely that discordance in that it's not interactive enough with the real world to be able to make you believe it's part of it. And the whole point is trying to get someone in that sense of this is my new reality. And that discordance that we have at the moment in AR between the real world and the information presented does make things a little bit more difficult, particularly when it comes to simulation. And it's worth saying, I guess, that the terminology is complex in that AR and VR are relatively well-defined. There is mixed reality that's there as well, and there is what's called XR, so a terminology that kind of encompasses all of these. So there are new things coming through, but in terms of what you said about AR, I completely agree. It's just not quite there yet, particularly for simulation. All right, we'll watch this space. All right, then take us on then to VR. So VR is the simplest way of thinking about it is that you are, as a user, completely immersed in the virtual world with the real world being blocked out. So you put on a virtual reality headset and everything that you see is virtual in that virtual world and interactive if you want it to be. And that means you can be absolutely anywhere in the world and put people in a completely new and interactive environment. Now, 
that is the overview of VR in a nutshell. And the key thing from a learning point of view and simulation point of view about what VR offers, particularly over something like um, screen-based simulation, and we get this question quite a lot before we come and see people with VR is, okay, what's the difference between VR and screen-based simulation? And the key thing, if there's one answer to that question, is presence. So if, if people are looking for the best overview of VR, there's a fantastic book, an audio book by a chap called Jeremy Balenson, who comes out of Stanford, who really talks about the value of VR and the research on it over the last 20 years. But what he notes is that VR has this unique capability such that no other tech in the history of it has ever, has ever had to make the user believe that they are in that new environment. And that is presence. It's a sense of being there. So as a user, you know you've put the headset on, but provided you get the quality right, people become so immersed in that world that they have presence and therefore they learn from experience. And that really, Mel Slater is another person that does a lot of work on this, but he's shown that it is that feeling of presence that gives you experiential learning and therefore translates to practice. Uh, And for us, that is what the value of of VR is, really. This is very interesting because, of course, uh, this is exactly the kind of engagement issue that we talk about in face-to-face simulation. How do we get the psychology of the simulation happening? So I guess you're saying the sensory experience here being all-encompassing is what distinguishes it. Yes, that it's all-encompassing, but also that it's interactive. And as you move in the real world, you move in the virtual world. So it's not just that it's immersive, it's that it becomes the world that you are living in. And absolutely, that relationship between what we talk about in physical sim of fidelity and the the relationship of fidelity to presence, and actually fidelity fidelity works in, in terms of presence as well, is very interesting. And from my psychology background, I can get incredibly geeky about this. So I'm I'm desperately trying not to. But to give you an idea of of I suppose of, of what you need to create true presence. Number one, it needs to be interactive. As I say, as with physical simulation, you need to have some interaction, and that's why. Although a lot of people, when they think of VR, may think of 360 video, you lose the key element that you need for learning, which is that interaction. So for us, 360 is not really the way forward. But the other factor that really influences presence and that has also made made an impact on hype that we can talk about later um, is the hardware. And you need to have good quality hardware to be able to create that sense of presence. And just in relation to your your final point of fidelity in Sims speak, what I feel one of the key aspects of presence is getting the fidelity of that virtual experience right. And we split that into a number of components. So yes, there's the graphical fidelity, so the characters and your avatars need to look real. It's partly the animation, so they need to be moving in sensible ways and not feel static as you would in real life. But it becomes more about the behavioral elements. And we've put in an AI system to make the characters behave as they would in real life. And there's adaptive behavior and conversation. So what you do as a user changes how the characters behave. And it's that behavioral element that really increases your emotional fidelity, the functional, the situational fidelity of that environment, as well as all the game design that goes into it to make it flow like a real situation. And and worth saying, 
a lot of our team are game developers by background. This is serious gaming in a way, but it's just trying to use gaming to get across physical simulation in a different way. As I said, I can get very geeky about this, so I apologize. Oh, don't apologize. Simulcast is all for geekiness, Jack. You just geek it right out. Uh, I think the um, but this is this is interesting. But I guess listening to you now, it's starting to sound complicated. And I've been watching this VR stuff for ten years, thinking it's nearly there. It's nearly there. I get the sense it is there, and yet I still feel like there's a lot of talk about it. And so, help us sort of understand what's hype and what's real in terms of the average simulation educator being able to access the kind of technology you're talking about to use effectively for their learners yeah um great question and really what we've been focusing on uh, recently so is there a huge amount of hype yes it's massive and the hype around vr is is not helpful um for a number of reasons firstly people try different kinds of things as i say vr is not created equal so they try different things and they find potentially that they've used vr five years ago where it made them feel sick or they've tried it on a google cardboard on a gear vr and it doesn't it doesn't work for them as i say you need to really use a high-end headset with software that's specifically designed to be able to to do what you want it to do to cut through the hype if you like so in terms of VR is not created equal, there are hardware components, and there are software components to that. And that is what has been a problem with the hype. And the other thing to say about the hype is that VR is not a panacea. It is not the answer to everything. You cannot just throw virtual reality, uh, throw virtual reality into an industry and say it's going to change the world. It really needs to be about that problem and solution element. If you want to expand access to simulation, I think VR is a fantastic way to do it, but it is not the answer to everything. So those are really the elements of hype that I think are not useful. In answer to your question about, okay, how can we as a, as a sim fraternity get into VR? I would obviously, as you say, a commercial company, I would obviously say Oxford Medical Simulation is the way forward, but it's worth me talking probably a little bit about what we do in VR and therefore how we can deliver it to get across that idea of actually VR is now ready to go and you can use it in your institution. Okay, so we've heard a little bit about how some of it's hype, some of it's not. Uh, I think the struggle for someone like me is I look at it and I think, sure, but how do I actually use that? So maybe give us a few examples of uh, some of our learners and how you see it pertaining to them. Yeah, so tends to be best to split this into into two. So obviously there's surgical VR, so the idea of procedural simulation uh, with virtual simulations, haptics potentially, that has an excellent evidence base behind it in terms of uh, improving procedural skills. What we focus on is much more the medical side of simulation and how to improve behavior in your more medical emergencies. And probably the best way to explain that is just to talk a little bit about what we do as a company to give uh, listeners an idea of what of what virtual sim is is feasible for in medicine. So what we do is essentially we give institutions access to uh, software. So it's a software platform to be able to run VR software, which includes a load of different scenarios in different libraries, for example, medical emergencies or medical student or nursing suites of scenarios. They then have a VR headset and laptop that we just say you go out and you can buy your own. You can get them on Amazon. The hardware costs about one and a half thousand pounds, so two thousand dollars for a laptop, or, or slightly cheaper 
for a, for a desktop. And the Oculus Rift headset, which is what we build for, um, costs about £400. So you can get it, I think, cheaper in the US. So that is the upfront. That's the kind of hardware that you that you need. And then there's our software on top of it. And our software very much focuses on that clinical decision under pressure and dealing with the technical and non-technical skills. So deliberate practice, explicit learning outcomes and feedback to let people make mistakes in the environment. So as a user, you would uh, put on the virtual reality headset and an institution can choose all of the scenarios that they give different users access to and be able to track their progress over time. But the user puts on that VR headset and they find themselves in the virtual world, so the virtual emergency department, for example. And there they play the role of the doctor or nurse or whoever the, the scenario is catered to, and they can really do anything that they would do in physical simulation. So Everything around the room is interactable, so uh, you can uh, speak to the patient, you can examine them, uh, uh, investigations, interpreting the results of those investigations, and those investigations change in real time depending on what you've done in the scenario. You can do treatment, so fluids, you can give uh, medications, and again, that changes patient physiology depending on what's wrong with them and depending on uh, what different rates that you've given things. Um, And everything that happens in that scenario is then being logged and fed into a huge feedback algorithm based on best practice, but that's also editable by the institution, so that the user then gets feedback on everything they've done in that sim, as well as a period of guided reflection. And the feedback is based on Perl's framework, really. And the institution then gets all of the data, all of the analytics, all of the metrics on what that student has done. And the student also gets the feedback to keep to take home, as well as an area of learning reflection and a score. And users love a score, of course, because we're inherently competitive people. So it's that idea of gamifying it a little bit to get people through sim. So from an institutional point of view, that's a background to what medical simulation can do. And really what we say is, you know, for VR, you've got to try it to be able to see the value. So, So we say, if you go and Buy the hardware. We can, you know, give you the software and get you get you into a software trial and see how you go with it. But it is now commercially available to be able to go out, buy some commercial hardware and to be able to try the software and see whether it fits your needs. Great. So let's think about positioning this educationally. So what you're doing with this is uh, making an environment that is familiar or familiar enough to people and you're essentially training individuals in both an individual skill set perhaps in prioritisation, decision-making, management, but also potentially uh, in individual team working skills because you've got a virtual team that they might be working with? That's right. And in terms of the environment, it's about making the environment close enough to their real world that they feel, yep, I see this as being my real environment. So we work very hard to be able to create that to make it something that works for everyone. And then, yes, those two elements are exactly what we focus on. Yes, we focus on the technical skills in terms of time for fluids, time to antibiotics. All of the feedback is very detailed and time stamped in terms of literally every behavior that you did. But we also do look at the prioritization, the how you interacted with your team, whether you called for help. So those softer skills. And yes, on the individual level, and very much uh, the platform that we're discussing at the moment is that individual level platform. So it's one person in VR at, the, at, at a time. You have a virtual nurse there who you interact with. So it's that idea of you begin to learn the importance of your team and to be able to work with them. So 
currently it's that single player beginning to build up your team working skills. What we are developing currently and will be ready in the autumn, so in the fall, is that idea of multiplayer. So it's that you can have the virtual patient with a nurse on the Gold Coast and a doctor in Oxford, and they can all be interacting around the same virtual patient and then get group feedback and do a group debrief around that. So currently single player, but still focusing on the team working. But what's coming is that true multiplayer uh, interprofessional education in one scenario. And I can certainly see the benefit in both because obviously there's some efficiency and accessibility to practice on your own, uh, albeit with a simulated team, but then there's obviously also benefits in simulated team working uh, together where you've got multiple outcomes. So geek out just for a little bit more here, Jack, uh, because I suppose I am a little interested in how you set that up. So I get the sense, the environment, and that's sort of physical programming kind of challenge. But these conversations must be quite hard to, like, do you have a series of branching points or do you sort of use a naturalistic language uh, sort of background? How do you get it so that there is a team experience simulated um, in the face of the individual learner? Yes. So in terms of the environment, yep, you're absolutely right. It's about graphical artists, um, animators and modelers to be able to create that environment that's based on a real life situation. In terms of the conversation and adaptive elements to it, Worth saying with the conversation, we have worked on voice recognition for some time, and it's that idea of can you make it seem uh, truly interactive with voice at the moment. Voice interaction isn't quite, despite uh, there's some fantastic things like Alexa and Siri, isn't quite good enough yet to be able to do true natural language processing, to be able to make it a genuinely interactive physical conversation. And that's it's pretty good. But as soon as you get that disconnect, when Alexa says, I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand you, you begin to get away from that immersion of simulation. So the way we deal with communication at the moment is all it's uh, essentially when you're in VR is still menu based communication. So it's what you would normally say uh, in physical simulation or in the real world. And the way we've designed the user interface and the user experience, that takes about a two minute learning curve for people to just forget that the menu's there. You just get to grips with that is the world that you're in. And then people interact with that conversation as they would do in real life. In terms of how we make that adaptive and how we make that feel real, I there's I hesitate slightly because there's probably only so much I can tell you before uh, my CEO would get very angry about commercial sensitivity. So yes, it, <laughs> we yes, <laughs> uh, we do do uh, cunning things to be able to make that uh, seem and feel uh, very real. Uh, it's not it's not a simple linear story with with branching points because the whole point of this is that you can do anything in any order as you would do in real life. Um, so. Uh, I being slightly coy, it's not branching, but I can't tell you a great deal more than that, I'm afraid. Well, that's probably all I would understand anyway, Jack, so I'm happy to leave it there. But I think that is probably the holy grail, isn't it? And um, we've watched things like Alexia and Siri with interest and uh, 
There's still ways to confound them. It doesn't take too much. So um, I'm sure that technology will continue to improve. In fact, I heard Alexia uh, recorded a conversation at home without consent and sent it off to someone's friends recently. So uh, you, I guess anything you is possible. You get into a huge amount of ethical minefields with all of this in terms of data sharing uh, because you have to, particularly with Alexa, when someone talks, you have to then bounce that up to the cloud to be able to analyze it and bounce it back down to your software. So, yes, it is a minefield, but, it you know, give it a, give it a year or so and that will be that will be coming through all right so this sounds pretty interesting and um again uh without delving too much into your business model i am kind of interested so are these the kinds of things that institutions sign up for or are individuals interested in signing up for tr- uh training how do you you know think about presenting this to the people who are interested? yeah so at the moment it's very much an institutional model so we sell it to um, hospitals to medical schools to nursing colleges really anyone who's interested in expanding their access to sim so it is that institutional license and we say to institutions feel free to go and buy your own hardware that's not what we are about we are a software company and we can either deliver that software on a per scenario basis or on an annual user-based license. So institutions can say to us, okay, how many people do we want to put through in a year? And we provide a license based on that. So that's really much more the institutional model with the institutions being the hub of that. Worth saying that with the hardware that we use, although you can use that in a SIM center, so although you can put it or put one or two or five sets of hardware um, in a SIM center, that makes no difference to the license cost whatsoever. We're very happy for people to use as much hardware as they want to. Um, We also say, because it's a laptop and Oculus, you can actually go and take this and put it anywhere. So it's a good way of, if you've got multiple sites of taking hardware, giving it to you know a smaller hospital and saying actually now you've now you've got a sim center elsewhere that you can do sim in and that's why we really do it on that institutional basis at the moment down the line there is the potential for doing more individually based licenses at the moment just not quite enough people have the the good enough hardware to make that to make that a viable model but i think in future we will be expanding to do it uh, on individual licenses Worth saying that you can also do all of our simulations on on the screen if you like. Uh, The software works on a screen, so you could do it at home. But very much, uh, as I've indicated before, the value of us is in that immersion, is in that sense of presence. So we think that, that true VR is the way forward. Yeah, so very interesting stuff. Um, I guess, Jack, there's a lot of emphasis now on return on investment in simulation, which sort of poses two related questions. One is, uh, does it work? And second, you know, how do you show that and how it stacks up against other uh, financial models of doing sim or indeed other methods of training? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ROI is always been ever since we first thought of this it's always been at the forefront of my mind seeing how expensive physical simulation can be when done well so in terms of the 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 great question of does it work um my simple answer would be i suppose yes so there's a huge amount of evidence behind vr in simulation in general both in surgical and both in medical and i can provide a load of references to that um that you can use as you see fit also people can look at our website there's a page on evidence there that takes you to external evidence about other kinds of vr so 
does VR and simulation work? I would say yes. Uh, does our specific kind of VR and simulation work? Again, yes. We've had independent trials run through uh, University College London to show that not only do users uh, really like it in terms of the quantitative, uh, sorry, in terms of the qualitative side, but also that it improves performance over time in terms of the key things that influence patient care. So it was a prototype and we ran a sepsis scenario and things like time to antibiotics, time to fluids, uh, an overall score improved over different tries. So, so in terms of does that work in simulation in VR simulation translate to practice? That is, of course, the bigger question. That in physical sim, we've been struggling for a number of years to be able to prove actually how does that influence outcomes. I think that VR is too early to be able to say, look, here are the patient outcomes that we've got by training people in sim. Really, what we say is this is a different way of delivering the same learning of physical simulation. And therefore, there are the patient outcomes that come along with it. Yes. And of course, obviously, these are things that uh, uh, face-to-face simulation is uh, struggling with and continues to as well. So, Jack, this has been very interesting, and I feel like it's clarified a lot of things for me, both about the technology and its applications. Let's geek out a bit for a few more minutes. Um, Where do we see it in the future? I suppose both technology-wise, but also in terms of applications. Where do you think things are going to go in the next two to three years? And I think from a hardware point of view, it's only going to improve. So, Uh, All of the big companies have put a huge amount of money behind VR in terms of making standalone headsets, in terms of making uh, truly useful haptics. So haptics have still got some way to go before they they work efficiently. Um, The voice recognition that we've talked about already is just coming through properly. And that multiplayer element that we're developing, all of that in terms of the software and hardware developments are going to be expanding over the next few years. So I think... Having said, I try to cut through the hype as much as possible. I do really believe that this is the tip of the iceberg for VR and it will carry on expanding. There's very little to stop VR being used in any kind of immersive, interactive education. VR will be a fantastic way of getting simulation to medical students to be able to get people to learn from experience quicker. One of the lovely things that we found about VR is that people really enjoy it. We designed it to be a serious educational tool. Turns out people love it. And that idea of psychological safety that we've struggled with in SIM for quite a long time, how do you how do you create that safe container? The lovely thing about VR is that people have that already. So they already know that they are in a safe space. They know that it's just a computer simulation. And so they know they can do what they want. And that really allows people to explore in different ways and also to not have the pressure of someone watching them. And so you get the potential advantage of being able to get more senior clinicians in to be able to make sure they're up to speed or upskill themselves. That then brings us on to the idea of assessment in, in virtual reality simulation. It's obviously immersive, it's objectives, it's standardized, it lends itself perfectly to to OSCEs. And I think this will be a big area for, for virtual reality in future. We've not validated for use in that, but a number of the institutions we're speaking to are thinking of it along the lines of actually, can we use this for OSCEs or for assessment? And for that, we're, we're all for it. So we say, yep, I, I think it's a great tool for that as well, particularly with the huge amount of analytics 
that you get out of it. And with that, you can really track people's progress over time, but also identify struggling students to give them more training, be that in physical sim or in virtual sim. So just for our listeners, uh, I know not all of you go onto the blog, so I'll just spell out the website here. It's Oxford Medical Simulation, all one word, .com. And uh, looking at the website there, there's lots of information, as Jack said, about uh, exactly what this is, what it looks like, a bunch of frequently asked questions, uh, as well as sort of links to other references and other uh, opportunities that are in there. So, uh, Jack, look, this has been, as I said, very edifying for me, both from a technology and application point of view. Um, any final thoughts you want to leave the Simulcast listeners with? I think just if you're vaguely interested in this and you want to be able to see, hopefully, what the hype is all about and cut through it in some way, I would say do get in touch with us. I'm more than happy to speak to anyone about anything, even if you are just interested in the possibilities of VR. As you can see, I love speaking about it. So I'm more than happy to be contacted. You can contact us through the website, through the contact form, or you can contact me directly Um I can give my email address. It's jack at oxfordmedicalsimulation.com. Um, and we are also on Twitter, although uh, I'm just getting to grips with titter, uh, Twitter. So at uh, VR Medical Sim is our Twitter handle. And I will do my best to engage more with Twitter because I know you're fantastic at it. And that's actually how you found out about us in the first place. Absolutely, it is. So, uh, well, that's great, Jack. And uh, speaking of uh, speaking with you, we're going to see you at CSAM in Bilbao in Spain in a few weeks' time. And just a reminder for our listeners, we're going to be at the conference there and we will be interviewing a bunch of people like Jack and finding out what the Europeans are up to in simulation. And uh, on that note jack thanks so much for your time and we'll look forward to hearing some updates as uh, some of these wonderful blue sky things come to fruition and some of the applications really find their uh, legs so thanks again pleasure thank you very much for your time you're listening to simulcast a podcast about healthcare simulation